Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, 2020 throws up another twist as a team gets into trouble trying to play out from the back at the Emirates, and it's not Arsenal. We look back at the Virgil suicides, Gunners' 2-1 defeat of the Champions, and the rest of the midweek Premier League action, plus a big look forward at the weekend's FA Cup drama. Meanwhile, Wickham reached the Championship, and Wigan might just stay there to get the latest extraordinary chapter from the Latic struggle for survival. All that, plus Rory sorts out Turkish football, and not for me, Clive, say ITV, it's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Going down to Liverpool there for Arsenal, who didn't uh, uniquely this week. Uh, welcome, listener. It is July the 16th, and we're joined by Rory Smith of the New York Times. Hello, James. Duncan Alexander of Optar. Hello, James. Hello. And Lindsay Hooper of Prime Video. Hello, James. Hi there. One of our guests will be banging on about a team beginning with W. But uh, unusually enough, it's <laughs> Don't you. do this. I get so many messages. It's not you. I know you mean Wickham, yeah. Yes, I do. All right, Duncan. Hi. Well, well I mean, yeah. Are you yeah. still speechless from Monday? I'm still going through all the admin. I've got a lot of messages after that game from people I hadn't heard from for a long time, as you might expect. So, yeah, it was a pretty momentous Monday evening, as they go. Yeah, everyone's a bit of a Wickham fan now. How do you feel about that? disgusted uh, you know it's when, when your niche hobby goes mainstream there's nothing worse is there really are you are you the most famous Wickham fan um I think Bill Turnbull the uh yeah tv presenter might edge it but um probably up there well I mean he present BBC Breakfast and I think yeah. was he on you know yeah. Bill Turnbull you'd recognize the face but maybe not maybe not kind of want his autograph unlike Duncan I mean, specialists might point out that during the 2001 FA Cup run, Fern Britton, who lives locally, started turning up to games, but she never carried it through and became like a regular fan. Um, it's disappointing for both Wickham <laughs> fans and Ready Steady Cook fans at the time, I think. So. Testament of a real fan, I think, in 2020, especially because it would have to be prior to lockdown, but have you seen Gareth Ainsworth's band in action? Uh, not live. I've, I've listened to the single... Thanks, Lindsay. That was The Wanderer by Gareth Ainsworth and the Cold-Blooded Hearts. Woof. Hey, should we have more Wanderers chat later, or is there something you want to just leave us on now, Duncan? No, let's come back to it, shall we? We will. Uh, there's so much to discuss, of course, today. The newly narrowed top four race to come. But next up, let's touch on one of the more remarkable things on Wednesday, Arsenal's victory at home to Liverpool, which was unexpected. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. It's been 
interesting. Liverpool suddenly started making some terrible mistakes, and Nelson punishes another one. And Arsenal, to general surprise, leads the champions by two goals to one. Yes, Arsenal to Liverpool one. Liverpool had opened the scoring through Sadio Mane, and then a remarkable series of blunders from their back line saw first Lacazette and then Reese Nelson earning Arsenal the first victory by a team who'd gone behind to Liverpool since 2017. That's 83 games. Remarkable stuff. Now, there's been a lot of focus on Liverpool's mistakes, but how about Arsenal making Liverpool make mistakes, profiting from those mistakes, and then stopping Liverpool replying? It's easy to to look at the fact that Liverpool did kind of commit some form of harakiri for sort of 15 minutes at the end of the first half, but the fact that Arsenal went for 45 minutes after the two goals and didn't really didn't really look under any kind of intense pressure. There were spells where Liverpool had a huge amount of the ball. There was one 10-minute period where they had 92% of the possession, which is extraordinary. It was a very strange game to watch. But I think Arsenal showed a real kind of steal that we maybe don't associate with them in restricting Liverpool. to. I think they had maybe one or two relatively sort of whatever's between a half chance and an actual chance in the second half. There was no kind of moment where you thought, right, Arsenal are going to crumble here. And that for Arsenal is, is real progress, even against a Liverpool team that maybe aren't at, you know, their absolute most intense. Right. Liverpool have dropped 13 points in their last nine league games, which does suggest there is something going on there. But those stats regarding shots on target, Liverpool, uh, 24 shots, eight of them on target, just one goal. Uh, Arsenal with three shots, two on target and two goals. Mark Davison says, is that one of the best shot to goal percentages in the Premier League? And if not, what is? Well, it's the first time Arsenal have won a game in the Premier League having only three shots in the era for which we have data. And it's the biggest gap they've had between shots and their opponent shots as well, 21. It's also the lowest recorded possession they've ever had in a, in a Premier League game as well, 31%. Um, so it's very odd. They basically did a Burnley to Liverpool a few days after Burnley did a Burnley to Liverpool. So, I mean, if Liverpool replayed those two games, nine times out of ten, they'd probably get six points. And yeah, it doesn't really matter now. But in a sense, I think it kind of does matter because, you know, they were going for all these records and they, one by one, they have all just dropped away. And it doesn't, yeah, I've had a lot of people point out to me on Twitter that they're, they're the league champions and, and who cares. But I think if they're going to be remembered as this great team, it would have been good to at least have, you know, a 100-point season or a perfect record at home or something like that would have been quite nice. They've definitely lost some of their clinicalness. I mean, Mane's goal aside, there were so many chances that were squandered. I think we've we've focused on Arsenal only, you know, taking three shots all game, but Liverpool had 24 and... They really weren't very clinical in front of goal. I think Salah, in particular, disappointed. He had a a couple of really good chances. So I don't really know what's going on in that attacking part of the pitch. I know a lot will be made of Virgil van Dijk and leading to that first goal, the equaliser. But I think that there was a lot of question marks with their attack as well. Still kind of of the opinion that winning the first Premier League title, winning the first title for 30 years is going to be the bit that's remembered for Liverpool. But you have listed, Duncan, the the various records that they could have achieved and the way they've dropped off in in recent weeks and whether it is complacency, whether it's an element of burnout after two remarkably intense campaigns, is this something we can allow them after finally winning the title or or is there a worrying is there something worrying there for Jurgen Klopp? 
Well, I think Lindsay pointed out the attack. I mean, since um, the Premier League restarted, we record a category of uh, of shot called big chance. You know, when a player is reasonably expected to score, Salah's wasted seven of those, um, which is two more than any other player and more than some teams. So you know, he's trying to get the golden boot again, and he could have easily been leading the the goal scoring charts if he'd have tucked away even you know three or four or five of those. I think when Liverpool missed out on Timo Werner, everyone said, well, it doesn't really matter because the front three are imperious and Werner wouldn't have got in. But I think um, Firmino's form is is a bit concerning. Um, obviously, he hasn't scored at home all season. Um, you know, and they're, as we pointed out previously, they're all 28 now. They're not going to go on forever. So I think there is a slight sort of shadow over the over the club in the sense of, you know, maybe this, you know, the, the levels they've had for the last two seasons, are they going to be able to keep it up for a, for a third season? It strikes me there's a, there's, a, there's a few different things going on. I think one is, is just natural psychology where we, we tend to think of kind of losing your intensity or dropping off as being a kind of going from running around at 100 miles an hour to just walking, not really caring, deliberately giving away dolls, which admittedly did happen a bit at the Emirates. But I think it, it's more to do with kind of just not making that final burst, that final quarter of a percent, half a percent and at the elite level. You see that and Liverpool can't, can't artificially create that. They have achieved what they wanted and, and their intensity has dropped. I think there's an element of burnout. I think there's an element that Klopp's trying a few different things, giving a few different players chances to see what happens next season. I, I think it, it's a bit dangerous to start kind of revising how we'll remember a team. Does that, James, you're right. The, the main thing is that they've, they've won the lead. That's what they wanted. I think Roy Keane said no one prints the table on the back of your medal. There's, it's just where you came that matters. Um, but I th- equally, I think there is maybe a bit of a risk going into next season, given how short the turnaround will be, to get that momentum back. And do you think in that light that it's particularly crucial whether or not they sign anybody new over the summer and are they going to? That's Andre B's question. I think it will be the opposite. I think they'll get rid of more players than they bring in. I think they probably will bring in a marquee signing, but I see players like Shakiri and Origi potentially leaving the club who've who've had a lot, and in particular Origi, obviously has scored some very important goals for Liverpool. But I think there will be younger blood coming through. And I think a lot of that might come from the academy. They might not shop abroad or, sh- or shop within the Premier League transfer market. I think Klopp will be tempted to try and bring more youth through. Just on that Roy Keane thing, I don't want to wantonly disagree with him, but the Preston team of 1888-89 were called the Invincibles at the time because people recognised that it was it was quite cool that they'd gone through the whole season and not lost a single game. So, And particularly in the social media age, I think you know fans will sit and argue which was better, the Arsenal Invincibles or the Chelsea team that only conceded 15 goals or the City team that got 100 points. So, yeah, it, ultimately it doesn't matter, but in a lot of ways I, I kind of think it does. All right. Well, Liverpool dropping 13 points in the last nine games. What does it mean? We'll see. But Arsenal take this victory and head into an FA Cup semi-final with City. Can they use this spirit, this momentum? Can they win a big game when they're not gifted two goals? To get more of a picture on a delicate week for Arsenal, let's hear now from James McNicholas, a.k.a. Gunner Blog, the Athletics' Arsenal correspondent. James, thanks so much for, for joining us the morning after a pretty amazing night at the Emirates. Yeah, it was quite an extraordinary game. Quite a silly game in some respects. Um, I mean, Liverpool ended up kind of emulating what is an, an archetypal Arsenal performance by dominating, not really doing anything with it, and then making two horrendous defensive mistakes at the back to lose the game. Mm. 
Mikel Arteta in his post-game interview, definitely not in a celebratory mood, though. And you've written about what a delicate moment this is for the Gunners and mm. the restructuring, the, the team rebuilding that they need to do. It is. It is particularly delicate because they are in such a difficult financial position. You know, they were the first and only Premier League club to ask their players to take a definitive wage cut. But Arteta was perfectly suited in some respects by what happened last night because he got the win, but also his point was absolutely made by the nature of that performance. You know, the gulf between the two teams could not have been more apparent. So for him to go out after the game and say, look, we need to spend money if we are to get anywhere close to Liverpool, you couldn't argue with it because even though they got the three points, they were absolutely miles away in terms of quality. Well, you've written that essentially everything they've got planned in terms of transfers is on hold until they sort out a place in Europe. At the moment, they're ninth in the table. What's their best prospect? Is it climbing those couple of points until maybe seventh or the FA Cup? Well, I mean, there is quite a serious benefit to that win to Arsenal because I think it potentially gives them a bit of a boost in either avenue of getting to Europe. You know, first and foremost, it does enable them to stay a bit closer in touch in the table and the rest of their fixtures are relatively kind. Um, but it crucially as well gives them a little bit of confidence ahead of that Manchester City game in the FA Cup, which otherwise I would have really feared for them in. You know, those that encounter has not played well for Arsenal in the past. It's not been a good matchup, uh, but they will go into it now with a little bit more confidence at least. Uh, and if they are to win out with that game, you suspect it will have to be a, a similar sort of rearguard action. Mm. Both league meetings this season finished 3-0 to City. The two teams last met at Wembley in the 2018 League Cup final. That one finished 3-0 to City as well. It's Pep versus Arteta again. Can it be different this time? If I was speaking as an Arsenal fan, I wouldn't feel too optimistic. I mean, look, Arteta is a kind of inside man. You know, he should know Manchester City better than most. Uh, the only thing I would add as a caveat is, I suppose, in the last league meeting, things imploded pretty early on with David Luiz coming on and producing a kind of disaster class as a substitute being sent off uh, within minutes of actually arriving on the field. If they can avoid that fate this time, they might make a bit more of a fist of it. But it, it certainly is a match that hasn't suited Arsenal in the past. So they'll need something pretty special. I mean, they managed it in the FA Cup semi-final in 2017 when they went on to beat Chelsea in the final. They'll have to replicate that if they're, if they're going to get there and get to Europe via that means. Mm. And it is 25 years since they failed to qualify for continental competition. If they were to miss out this time, and as it stands, they currently are heading for that, is it the wilderness that awaits? Well, I think the biggest concern would be that it would put a sort of £30 million hole in Arsenal's budget, a budget that's already got plenty of holes in it as it stands. The only thing they could take as a source of inspiration there is the opponent they faced on Wednesday night, Liverpool, who in Jurgen Klopp's first season in charge, he came in in October, I believe, and they finished eighth in that year and did not qualify for Europe the following year. Now, within 12 months, he had them up to fourth. And he did that on a net spend of around £2 million. He brought in five first-team players. None was more expensive than Sadio Mane at £34 million. So it's not such an extraordinary fortune that was used to kind of turn around the fortunes of that team. Obviously, Mikel Arteta isn't Jurgen Klopp and doesn't have the experience of rebuilding in that fashion. But maybe if you were looking for a positive there, being able to focus purely on their domestic goals and the Premier League standings might be a benefit. The fear would just be if they don't get that Europa League football, what that will do to their spending power and will it just take it away entirely? I'm really intrigued by the by the Aubameyang situation because uh, 
I mean, his performance last night was pretty impressive. He didn't touch the ball for about 25 minutes after coming on. Mm. He's obviously a brilliant footballer, but given how precarious Arsenal's finances are, what's the justification, the sporting justification, do you think, for trying to tie a 31-year-old to a long-term, very expensive contract? That is, uh, yes, a multi-million pound question. And it's one that may be moot. I mean, if Arsenal don't make it into Europe... I do think they will struggle to keep hold of Pierre-Eric Aubameyang because I think he'll want to be playing in those competitions, especially given his relatively limited uh, time left at the top level. I, I think Arteta is an enormous fan of what Aubameyang brings to the team for the reasons that you mentioned. You know, the work he puts in in a position that's not his preferred position most of the time. And also he offers a slight guarantee of goals. I mean, even in a quite poor Arsenal team this season, his goal-scoring record remains exemplary. I think he's overperformed his XG significantly, which shows you how efficient he's been when chances have come his way. I think the concern for Arsenal and for Arsenal fans is you look at the Mesut Ozil situation, a guy who was the wrong side of 30, whose contract was running down. Arsenal felt they needed to keep him. They put him on a huge salary. And clearly that decision has not proved fruitful for Arsenal. I mean, at the moment, the Arsenal made five changes to their squad last night. He was not even on the bench, despite the fact he is now training with the first team. So that would be the, the word of warning. You know, Arsenal are in a bit of a bind. They need a rebuild and they will have to sell players. I think you're seeing signs of that already with Mateo Guendouzi kind of on the fringes of things there. He's headed for the exit door. Aubameyang is potentially a chance to make some money on a player. Arsenal have a horrible habit of letting their stars go for cheap or for nothing. But if they do, they are letting a bit of a crutch for the team go. His goals are so valuable. So it is a really big decision and one that has to be made in the next few weeks. All right, James, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. James McNicholas, a.k.a. Gunnerblog, the Athletics Arsenal correspondent. The team currently in seventh, the last of the Europa League places as it stands, are of course Spurs, who beat Arsenal at the weekend and went to Newcastle and got Jose Mourinho his first ever Premier League win at St James's Park on Wednesday night, we we looked at this game at the weekend and called it maybe a truer test of where Spurs are under Mourinho than the win against Arsenal. In which case, if it is, it was a pretty positive reaction from Spurs. Yeah, um, a few Spurs fans contacted me and said, is it actually true that since uh, Mourinho took over at Tottenham, they would be fourth in the Premier League table? And I said, yes, it is true. Um, Mourinho always said he wanted it to be July. Now it is. And yeah, maybe things are a bit better, but... You know, a few of them pointed out that well, that's good, but the the you know the the style of football isn't exactly inspiring. But he's he's making them a bit more solid. You know, Harry Kane still doesn't look remotely fit in some senses, but still managed to pop up with two good-headed goals. Um, yeah, they they seem to be making a bit of progress, and and you do think that you know with a with a bit of transfer business in the summer, um, particularly in the defence, they uh, they could be you know, challenging for the top four again next season. Well, Kane looking good again with a brace here. Uh, Mourinho says Spurs will fight for the Europa League, although being in the competition would be like Lewis Hamilton competing in Formula 2. Uh, a touching moment as well in this game after Sun Young Min's goal as he embraced Serge Aurier and dedicated the, the scoring strike to his late brother. Right, well, a week that began with Man City's ban... Uh, from the next two seasons of the Champions League getting overturned. A lot of reaction to that in our Tuesday show. We'll be talking about next the battle for Champions League places with the storm circle tightening, if you will, for the teams chasing those. 
thought I'd never see you again. I missed how you made me feel, the excitement you brought me, but I never stopped loving you. Did you just say something, mate? Oh, just looking at the Premier League fixtures like... Absence makes the heart grow fonder, so it's never been a better time to be a football fan. Celebrate with the Acker Cracker from Paddy Power. It covers all games on all markets, and if one leg folds, you get a free bet. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, minimum odds of 1 to 5 on for each leg. T's and C's apply, 18 plus, begumbleware.org. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Yep, top four now, or cancel your plans for Thursdays. That was the message from the Court of Arbitration for Sport to the likes of Leicester and Man United and Chelsea as they battle for next season's Champions League spots. Chelsea got themselves a narrow win against Norwich. They are four points clear, listener, of Leicester and Man United, who are fourth and fifth Leicester, ahead on goal difference. Both those teams, of course, yet to play in this round. Essentially, they are playing Thursday evening to try and ensure that they don't. Uh, Not sure how much we can preview those two games, Man United at Palace, Leicester at home to Sheffield United. They're going to be happening almost as soon as you hear this, listener. But what we can talk about is another of the Champions League hopefuls who got done by a Mike Dean special this midweek. Mm. And yes, I'm talking about Wolves at Burnley. I can't get past the decision for the penalty. I've woken up thinking about it this morning. Poor Matt Doherty, what's he meant to do apart from try and protect his face in that situation? I just was shaking my head at the time and I've watched it back this morning. I I just cannot understand why he came to that decision, especially with an overhead kick. So Wolves Um, have taken the lead through an extraordinary goal, another of your extraordinary goals this season. Probably the best one that Jimenez has scored this season, actually, that volley. And not just Jimenez, but a wonderful build-up, a classic Adama Traore run, and then there's a bit of luck. But then Jimenez, the way he takes that, remarkable. Yes, and the way that a lot of the the pundits in the studio, strikers, including former Wolves one Robbie Keane, was talking about technically how difficult that is um, to keep the knee down and get over the shot. Particularly at his height. Yeah, I think any strikers um, are going to really appreciate that Jimenez finish. But, you know, the gloss was taken off. This is a huge, huge decision for Wolves. Uh, they, they've started to show a, a real turnaround since those two defeats. I think uh, there's been a, a change in personnel from Nuno to try and go more attacking. We've seen the introduction of Podence um, and he's worked really well. And I think this has just taken away any hopes now of Champions League. The only thing that Wolves can go for now is Europa League football. Yeah, I think that's... That that's Wolves done, isn't it? Really, the mm. the gap. It, it's a shame because we did potentially have this this incredible final day lined up where, where Man United go to Leicester and Wolves go to Chelsea. And given that Chelsea still have to go to Anfield, that's their that's their penultimate game. Where it, I think it seems reasonable to suggest they they may not definitely win. Um, that could have been all kind of lined up perfectly for this incredible kind of topsy turvy day when when the four teams going for the Champions League were all were all facing each other and Wolves have to an extent let everybody down and it's all very yeah. well blame blame. I don't Mike think Dean. it's Wolves. I think it it was Mike Dean <laughs> that's let everyone down for the final day drama. Wow. I mean, can we have a bit of praise for Chris Wood's penalty? Because it was Burnley's only shot on target in the game. Also, that was the first time he'd ever taken a penalty in the Premier League. Um, and I would say it's one of the best ever penalties. Uh, no, yeah, no goalkeepers getting anywhere near it, are they? Top corner for your first ever penalty in the 96th minute. Decent. A- apart from the, the open goal that he missed moments before, we must point well, out. Well, you know, no one's perfect, even Chris Wood. But Burnley deserve a lot of credit for the way they've, they've handled 
they've handled the, the restart because they have literally nothing to play for and very few players to do to do it with. And yet they, unlike Newcastle, who we've seen kind of ebb and flow a little bit, and unlike Palace, who've who've just ebbed, the um, Burnley have. have have done really well the, 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 these last six weeks and that actually is testament to Sean Dyche I think we did Burnley credit last week Rory but that's okay coming up in the top four races I mentioned some key games for Leicester who host Sheffield United Thursday night but then have Jose Mourinho's sparkling Spurs on Sunday 4.30 Leicester of course have won just two of their last 11 games in the Premier League uh, Man United meanwhile are at Palace Thursday evening the, there's some suggestions that United, whether it's because Oli kept picking the same team or, or whatever, are running out of puff a little bit, which makes it a concern, I guess, for their FA Cup uh, semi-final with Chelsea, that they are in action at Palace this Thursday evening. I don't think you can apply that to Martial, who was fantastic. I mean, his work rate was second to none. He is looking like a, a striker that's going to score pretty much every match he's in at the moment. So I'm not sure I'd agree with that, James. Okay, fair enough. That was a 2-2 draw at home to Southampton on Monday night. Uh, Battling Saints will come up in conversation a little bit later on in this podcast. As for Man United, though, currently outside the top four on goal difference behind Leicester. What are their prospects in the FA Cup against Chelsea, who they've beaten three times already this season, twice in the league, once in the Carabao Cup? The thing that that strikes me as has been true of both United and Chelsea is how streaky they both are. That that United, I think there is an element of burnout that, that Solskjaer hasn't changed his team around a lot in the last last few weeks, and that perhaps that 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 fed into what happened against Southampton. But also, I think we know deep down what Man United are like at the moment. They are great going forward. They're really good to watch. They're they're exciting. They score a lot of goals. But we know that they're flawed. They are not yet the finished article. And no matter how many times you beat Bournemouth and Brighton, that does not become true. And I think the same to an extent can be said of Chelsea. So Solskjaer's record against against kind of the, the rest of the big six is brilliant this season. Whether that maybe plays into kind of Chelsea's hands a little bit, they they may feel that they've that they've had three cracks at beating them and they really can't be can't be missing a fourth I don't know but it's it's a it's a finely poised game between two teams who are, in, who are kind of interesting because they are both not perfect it's also a really big game in the sense that as we've discussed before as well that both managed by club legends who probably do get cut a bit more slack than a normal manager but you know if they end the season lifting the FA Cup that will be imagery-wise, a, l- a lovely thing for them and kind of will turn the season into a pretty successful campaign. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they probably will have to get past City in the final who seem to just scoop up domestic cups with ease. But um, there is definitely a big, big opportunity there. With Conte missing again for Chelsea, I think he's... Um, I think Frank Lampard is is running out of options of how to tactically change things at the moment. Um, we saw Hudson Adoy introduced recently, but he hasn't had that many minutes. Uh, there's been a reliance on Pulisic and his form, and he has been great. But I think if that dips in any of these games and he starts to suffer from burnout, then there aren't too many other options. Well, it's a big test for both managers then. Man United taking on Chelsea in that FA Cup semi-final. That's Sunday at six o'clock in the evening, traditionally. <laughs> enough uh, loads of excitement going on in the relegation battle of course we'll, we'll move on to that next you're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power down the bottom listener Bournemouth the only one of the sides battling the drop to have played already this round and coming mighty close to getting a point at Man City it ended 2-1 to Pep Guardiola's side 
But they dropped, uh, well, they conceded a goal for the first time since the restart, actually, at the Etihad and very nearly dropped some points as well. What, what did you make of Bournemouth's performance? I really felt for Eddie Howe. I think it was a really good performance, but it was just against the wrong opposition. If this fixtures had fallen in a different way, I think we'd have seen Bournemouth getting back-to-back wins. That's how good the performance was. And afterwards, you know, he was talking about it being devastated and heartbreaking because I think Eddie Howe acknowledges that you need that momentum. He needed to take that win from last time out and repeat it. And of course, then you're going up against a side like Manchester City uh, that that was always going to be a huge ask. But I think there was so many positives to take that they could have a real grandstand finish and I still see Bournemouth going down but I think they will win at least one of these next two matches. Right well next up for them it's Southampton they want Callum Wilson to find his his shooting boots again though before that one. Yeah I mean just to put in context how good Bournemouth were in relative terms it was the first time an away team had faced a Pep Guardiola team in a league match uh, and had more shots uh, since Hoffenheim did in March 2014 so it's a pretty rare performance Um, and you also wonder whether David Silver's pinned up a picture of James Richardson in his bedroom or dressing room. um, Most players have I think. Well yeah true yeah but he um, after Silver had scored only one direct free kick in his previous 305 games in the Premier He's now scored two in his last three, so he's obviously hugely inspired by your, you know, attack on him the other week. It was a wonderful uh, free kick from him. He also set up the other goal, uh, although the best pass arguably from a City player in this game came from Edison, who was up to his usual business distribution uh, wise. Is it all too late? There's three points behind West Ham and Watford ahead of their clash on Monday evening. They got Saints at the weekend. A fixture they won the you know the reverse version of back in September, moving up to third at the time, and then they finish off against Everton. What do you think? I think there is a chance that that things might fall in Bournemouth's favour. So they've got they've got Southampton and Everton left, which which are the sort of fixtures you want at this stage of the season because neither of those teams have anything to play for. Eddie Howe obviously is an Everton fan. That that might play into it as well. His desire to to get one over on the team of his heart. But then if you look you look at the other games, you've got West Ham playing Watford on Friday night that's winner stays up West Ham play Villa on the final day of the season and Watford have Manchester City and Arsenal left so you think well if Bournemouth can get those six points which their recent turnaround suggests is not impossible there is a possibility that that one of the other two and you'd be tempted to say Watford might yet take their place in the bottom three and Matt Davis Adams might just be proved wrong well that would be extraordinary Southampton though they're not really performing like a team with nothing to play for. And, and the amount riding on that, you know, all Solent derby against Bournemouth on Sunday, they want to be Pepper the only Pig team. Classico. Yeah. yeah, I've seen them a lot lately. Um, and isn't it interesting that they, when they have this freedom to play, are a team that are really turning it on? Um, I've been very impressed with Southampton. They've suddenly discovered the art of defending again and really pressing teams that they come up against. So anyone who's thinking they're going to take it lightly, I think, are really going to be proven wrong. Mm. They face Brighton, by the way, this Thursday evening. Uh, what do you make of uh, Michael Cox's assertion Uh, in our last show, that Brighton are not out of the relegation picture yet. They're five points clear with three games to go. So so the maths is that that Bournemouth would have to win twice and Brighton... Lose all. Yeah, but also West Ham and Watford not get any more points, basically. Well, no, West Ham and Watford could draw and then... I think West Ham and Watford will draw, do you? No, I think West Ham will win. 
I, I think, think Watford will win. You think Watford will win? Well, mm. between us, we'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed, Rory, just to give a bit of perspective on the Seagulls' form of late. Last four games, they've lost three of them. The one win coming against, well, Norwich. Anyway, all very, very interesting to see what happens tonight. And, of course, Friday's West Ham-Watford clash. Next up, listener, let's talk about some teams who are in the Championship and looking to stay there. First of all, the remarkable Wigan. Earlier this month, the recently purchased Wigan Athletic went to sleep one night an informed mid-table Championship side and woke up next morning in administration, facing a 12-point penalty that would put them in line to drop to League One. With their prospects grim, wages gone and club and livelihoods at risk, many wondered how the players would react. Unfortunately for their midweek opponents, Hull, the answer is pretty well. Nathan Burns carried it forward. Finds oh, down! What a goal that is! Goal. The pick of the goal says oh. Kieran Dow gets his hat-trick! And you will not see a more wonderful finish. It puts the gloss on top of the performance for Wigan Athletic. The Latics putting seven goals past the Tigers in the first half alone, running out 8-0 winners. That massively improved goal difference, enough to move them out of the bottom three, even with a 12-point penalty. Joining us now is Paul Kendrick of the Wigan Observer and Post. Paul, extraordinary first half of football against Hull. Unbelievable. It's to be honest, it's nice to talk about the football after the last couple of weeks. It's um it's been incredible. But yeah, I mean, I think any of us would have taken one nil, you know, given the state of play and the, the off field stuff, but to be seven up at half time, I think it just underlines the character and the just drive and passion in the team to try and right this wrong um off the field, on the field. They're doing it for the club, they're doing it for the town. Um, and in terms of statements, I don't think it could have been any more emphatic. I mean, 7-0 at half-time, it's, it's just, you, you couldn't write that. Mm. Are there a lot of different ways that players could have reacted to what has happened to Wigan and the fact that their wages have all but disappeared? I think they're being paid about 20% currently of the, of, the, of the contractual salary. And there's all sorts of doubts about where they're going to be next season. But this is a, it's been an extraordinary reaction from the team. Oh, very much so. I mean, we've seen it in the past. I mean, clubs that have gone into administration and, um, you know, players have down tools. Clinton Morrison, I, I heard him on the TV yesterday saying when he was at Crystal Palace, there was immediately six or seven senior players onto their agents trying to get out the door. Um, it's It's been completely the opposite at Wigan. It, it's it's almost galvanised them to thinking, you know, this is, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. You know, 75 members of staff have been made redundant. And it's such a family club that, more or less every one of those people will be known to the players. They see them on a match day. They see them at the training ground. And it's almost like they owe it to the 75 to to do what they can on the field to at least keep the mood up, make the club as attractive a proposition as they can for a potential buyer. And hopefully one day when this gets sorted out, hopefully those staff made redundant can come back. And it, it really is a team effort from the guys on the field to um, to the people behind the scenes. And in the meantime, in a very concrete sense, victories like this will keep them in the championship. Absolutely. I mean, if you just go back to January, it looked like Wigan were going to be relegated even without a points deduction. You, you were really struggling to see where the next win was coming from. Um, since the turn of the year, they've probably been with Brentford and Leeds, the form team in the championship. They, they're on course, as you can see from the table, to stay up really comfortably. Uh, to be hit by this at this stage of the season, such a signal. Um, but 
to actually look at the the possibility of effectively staying up twice against the odds, it's it's almost a chance for the players to make history. And I think that's also, you know, behind the scenes, it's you know, can we beat the odds twice? You know, we, we've got statues of Dave Whelan outside the ground, and the FA Cup heroes from 2013 will be remembered forever. And I almost think we're already at that level now. Whereas if this team can stay up twice against the odds. We're almost talking of them in, in historic club legendary status. It really is that big. And I think that is is underpinning a lot of it as well. Paul, it's Lindsay. Um, as well as making history for these players, do you not think as well a performance like the one that we saw is acting as a shop window and they could potentially rescue this club financially? I was reading all, all the clubs that are being linked with the, the current players. West Ham apparently have made a, an approach for defender Cedric Kipra. Um, I know that he's 23. I think he's had a lot of other interest as well from Germany and Watford as well. Uh, top scorer Kiefer Moore, um, Preston supposedly circling for him. Winger Jamal. Low has attracted interest from Celtic, Millwall and Cardiff. And then Spurs supposedly also interested in some of the younger players, a 15-year-old midfielder, Alfie Devine. So all these players potentially getting sold, that could be it, couldn't it, financially? Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, you mentioned all them. It's it's heartbreaking, to be honest, because... Um, Traditionally, Wigan have, have been bankrolled by Dave Whelan in the Premier League. And over the last few years, they, they've really taken steps to get away from that. They've got the academy sorted it, to the extent that we've got, a, for the first time, a couple of England under-18 stars. Alfie Devanya mentioned in un, England under-16s, coveted by some of the biggest clubs in the land. The model now, which um, was taken off Brentford, we've got players now coming in like Cedric Kipper, uh, who came in from Scotland a couple of years ago next to nothing. He's now arguably one of the best defenders in the championship. It's what makes the whole thing so heartbreaking, to be honest, because the model is there. If these owners are just of, of hang on until the end of the season, you know, Anthony Robinson was basically sold to Milan in January. There was a, a really minor complication over the medical, but that would have been £10 million in. That covers the debt for the year. We've got players coming through who can take over from him. Is such a well-run football club, and for this to happen, and the, the, the possible fire sale of all the players that you mentioned, it's um, it's heartbreaking. Like I say, because it, it's it, the club is in such a good state, and the administrators have said that numerous times. This is a very well-run football club that shouldn't be in the situation it is. And obviously, the worry is that even if we do stay up this season, you're looking at players, senior players, that the kids coming through who are going to protect the future of the club with with possible sell-ons they're going to have gone as well. And, and we're effectively going to be back to where we were years ago, uh, fighting the odds when we should be really consolidating in the championship and maybe even looking to the playoffs. Paul, the administrator has for now made a lot of noises about there not being a fire sale. And also, of course, the fact that they're into the 21-day the period in which the, the club is being marketed around to see about potential buyers. There's been, uh, intriguingly, interest apparently from the uh, Wigan Warriors, the rugby league team. What, what? Just to finish off, what's the what's the latest on the prospects of somebody coming in and rescuing the Latics? Um, it's good. I mean, we believe there's there's nearly sixty interested parties that have have registered um, with the administrators. He sent out all the, the the information packs. He said right from the very off, if he got two or three serious bidders, that would be a major result. Obviously, you, you alluded to one of them is is a local consortium uh, backed by the Wigan Warriors chairman Ian Lenigan, who is a football man. He used to be involved with Oxford United, uh, former chief of the EFL, uh, local man made good. 
wants to pull the warriors and the latics together. It's backed by the council. It's backed by the local MP, Lisa Nandy. That is the absolute dream scenario, I think. He wants to... He's not getting silly. He's not going to try and hit the Premier League in a couple of years. He wants the club on an even keel, supporting itself, being a, a beacon for the for the town and the community like the Warriors is. Fingers crossed that is going to come through because I think that that is the dream scenario. But obviously the administrators have also got a duty to take the, the, the biggest offer that comes in to protect the, the future of the club. Uh, whether that's from abroad, we don't know. But I think after being burned, you know, so badly um, over this recent one, uh, I think we're all keeping our fingers firmly crossed that is this local business that can hopefully um, keep the club as secure for as long as possible. Paul Kendrick there of the Wigan Observer and Post. Uh, coming up for the Latics, two matches. They're away at Charlton Athletic this weekend and then... Next midweek, as the championship comes to a close, they host Fulham. What a finale this might be. Of course, if they do stay up, Duncan, who will they be facing next season? Could be the homophone classico, yeah, uh, Wigan Wickham. Hmm. Have you got your admin done? Are you free now to talk about Monday's yes. extraordinary 2-1 triumph in the League One playoff final against Oxford United? Joe Jacobson who was in the Totally Football League show last week, and I think this week as well, he, he famously had said that corners were the new penalties, and then on Monday he made penalties the new corners, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, he ended our season as top scorer from left-back, which is a, a fairly rare thing to happen. Um, everyone knows how good he is at corners, and basically our first goal came from one of his in-swinging corners. Uh, Anthony Stewart headed it in. I think Anthony Stewart was definitely the man of the match and it's quite instructive if you th- think about what we just spoke about with Wigan um, Anthony Stewart was essentially the last Wigan player to come through our youth team before we had to close it down because of the financial pressures and you know just couldn't afford to, to run it. Now him basically getting us up to the championship means we probably hopefully should be able to restart it um, and as we talked about with Wigan a minute ago you know for for clubs of this size being able to bring through players and then sell them on is you know is the lifeblood of of football in a lot of ways so that was quite a nice a little touch and then the the winning goal um, came from a penalty uh, scored by Joe Jacobson obviously had missed one in the in the semi-final against Fleetwood so um, I wasn't overly confident Um, he chose to hit it down the middle so it was quite a nice little thing as well that in grammatical terms, an Oxford comma is basically an unnecessary pause in a, in a sentence. And that was what did for the penalty because a long ball came over and Moore just ducked out of the way. Um, and then uh, the Oxford keeper, Eastwood, clapped into, into Fred on your dinner. Extraordinary that even in a moment of raw emotion like that, you could still come up with top, top content. The other Danny asked, how nuts did Oily Sailor go for Wickham's penalty? And also, Danny asked, what goal have you celebrated the hardest stroke gone most crazy for? Mine, says the other Danny, was Reed's header against Man United in the last game at Upton Park. Mine would be manless against Barcelona. What about you, uh, Rory, Lindsay? Ruben Neves against Derby, I think, for me. Oh, Here's Neves to tee it up and volley. I just love all goals. I think they're a great celebration of life. <laughs> Magnificent. Duncan, anyway, how nuts did you go for the penalty? Yeah, pretty pretty nuts. Um, sort of punt. I think I punched the floor about six times, um, which is quite an, an unusual manoeuvre for me. Um, but I mean, again... Like, like Sammy Kafour. 
Yeah, very much like that, actually. But um, my wife's yoga mat was down, so it didn't actually hurt. So, you know, even in... I, I was playing it safe. Um, but obviously, I mean, I guess the thing there is, you know, the fact not, not being at the game makes a big difference. Right. I think the, you know, I fell down the, the whole stairs when Wickham scored a winner at Leicester in the in the FA Cup. So that was more... The stairs at the stadium? Mm. Mm. Yeah. No yoga mat there for you. Well, hopefully next season you will be in the ground to see... Uh, mm. Wickham in the championship just briefly how how well set up are Wanderers to compete in the second tier well Wickham getting to the championship this season is possibly only beaten in the last 20 30 40 years in English football by Leicester winning the league and it might even be an equal achievement given the the disparity you know one Sunderland player's wages would cover our entire wage bill for for the whole year um so we're not particularly well set up for the championship and I don't think Wickham are going to go mad and start signing lots of players um, on big money. But you think about this season, we were, you know, Berry and Bolton started the season on, on negative points. It could be a similar situation in the championship next season. Quite a few clubs may be facing points deductions. You know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge, but, you know, it's, uh, there's a long way to go. you targeting 16th. I'd probably take 20th if you offered it me. So. But it is the championship, so there is a decent chance that by like November you'll be fourth and then it will mm. look like look like not getting promoted is actually a disaster <laughs> and Gareth Ainsworth will be sacked for being a failure. <laughs> Much more championship chat if you, uh, if you fancy that. In the Totally Football League show, with the participation, as we mentioned, of Joe Jacobson and Matt Davis-Adams, crucially, uh, this week, that's out at the moment. We're going to be talking about more excitements very, very shortly. First, though, it's time to hear from Lee Price with Ben Green. Thank you very much, listeners. Yes, it's me, producer Ben, on the line with Lee Price from Paddy Power, the part of the show that you never, ever fast forward. And Lee, let's start, please, with the Premier League. The big one on Friday night is West Ham versus Watford. Give us some markets for this one, please. Yeah, kind of relegation six-pointer or maybe survival free hit. I can't quite work that one out. Luckily, our traders are more decisive than me. We make West Ham the favourites here. They're 13 to 10 to get three points. That will surely confirm their Premier League status for another season. Watford are 23 to 10. The draws 2 to 1. As for first goal score, we make Troy Deeney and Halaire the most likely goal scorers for respective clubs at 5 to 1. Although, of course, West Ham, someone else has been scoring the goals recently. A certain Mr. Antonio. He's 13 to 2 to open the score in here. And would you really back against him? We'll come back to the Premier League in a moment, but let's deviate slightly to the FA Cup, where, as we've been hearing, it is very, very crucial for Arsenal to win this. Uh, as they take on Man City, do they have any hope at all? <laughs> it always feels like a bit of a test when I'm asked about an Arsenal game at the minute. Um, and I'll try not to dig you out here, Arsenal fans, but difficult when you play in Man City. But how's this? It's 5-1 to one, Arteta's men go through. 15-2, to two, they win in 90 minutes. 35 to 1, they win an extra time. 20 to 1, they win on penalties. Manchester City, by contrast, are 1 to 8 to go through. Sorry. And finally, Lee, back to the Premier League. Bournemouth versus Southampton. Can the Cherries get anything from this one and save their Premier League status for at least another week or so? Bournemouth are back, baby, kind of uh, briefly. Um, Southampton at home should be a game that helps them kickstart their relegation battle, admittedly a bit late. 
But we've seen Southampton recently and how difficult they can be, even when you're going for stuff, ask Man United. Bournemouth, though, are the favourites here. They're 5-4 to four to get a crucial three points. Saints at 15-8, though, have to look like value. The draw's 5-2. to two. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions, they apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Uh, oh, there's a big Leeds against Barnsley game tonight, isn't there? Rory, you're going along to that. I am going, yes. I'm going to my first time at Elland Road for, for, for a little while. Uh, I, right. They can't get promoted tonight, but right. there is a chance they'll be promoted either. If they win tonight, then they will be promoted if West Brom don't beat Huddersfield on Friday or Brentford don't beat Stoke on Saturday. Well, this is the thing. Brentford keep on winning. They're the only team in England, I read now, that have a 100% record since football got yeah. back underway. Yeah, I, they're, they're going to pick West Brom at this rate, aren't they? Well, I don't want to kind of take over Duncan's mantle as, as the numbers guy, but but I I believe that it is statistically impossible to win eight games in a row in the championship. But apparently, they've done it. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't want to counter Rory with more numbers, <laughs> but at the start of this season, only four football league clubs had finished in the top six of the top flight in their history and never played in the Premier League. Um, Berry, who sadly we lost, Brentford, Grimsby, and Preston. So, you know, Brentford before the war were one season at least with a top London team so it's, uh, it'd be good to see them back mm. Well, might happen the regular championship season ends uh, less than a week from now, next Wednesday night, so drama in store Meantime elsewhere Porto sealed the Ligonosh title in Portugal Wednesday night with a 2-0 victory over Sporting uh, In Italy there was uh, loads of midweek action, Juve drew again 3-3 with the very, very in Inform Sassuolo there. Seven points clear, though, with five games to go. The news being that Atalanta are now second, which would be their best ever City F finish. But that's why we wait for Inter to play Thursday night at bottom side Spal. Did you see Atalanta, uh, Paris Saint-Germain's Champions League opponents, of course, next month, with their Wigan-esque 6-2 win over Brescia at all? Atalanta scored too many goals to keep track of it. Their form has been extraordinary. Interesting that they got these six goals without Muriel, Ilicic and Papu Gomez as well so a bit of strength in depth there we also saw the first sign of raw fear from Julian Lorenz on uh, Twitter sort of like <laughs> he was going oh I tend to it'd be a very evenly matched game it's like yeah it probably will yeah. but it's really it's it's really well well poised that because as James says so Atlanta have got the strength in depth there's not just Papu and Ilicic and Muriel but there's obviously Zapata there's the, the Ukrainian lad Malinovsky Malinovsky's in incredible form yeah and his main thing seems to be that he just kicks the ball really hard which is a which is an underrated skill I did are there metrics for that, for how how hard someone kicks a ball? I think it's it's really It should important. be him versus Mason Greenwood at the moment. Mason Greenwood, also a hard kicker of balls. And they've got that depth, but PSG won't have played. Well, they've got two League Cup finals, whereas the City A season is the one that runs the longest. It'll finish on the 2nd of August, which is almost, I don't know, it's hard to tell how this will work out, but it feels like almost perfect timing. It will give Atalanta about a week before the Champions League gets underway. I think I'm right there with my dates. Anyway, there's much more Atalanta love and Champions League draw thoughts, by the way, with Julianne and James and Rafael Honigstein and Alvaro Romeo in Tuesday's edition of the Totally Football Show, which is out at the moment. So have a bang on that, listener, if you fancy finding out more. Rory, you also uh, have recently been to Istanbul to investigate the collapse of Turkish football's big three. Did you sort it out? 
not not that recently, I have to admit. Occasionally, one of the privileges of working for the NYT is that they don't kind of make you rush stuff out immediately. I went in February, and then obviously ah. there were some stories that happened in March. I, I can't really remember what happened in March, but something big, something quite big happened that made everything seem quite irrelevant. Hopefully, um, you documented it. <laughs> so we, um, I think we did a little bit here and there. The um, so we decided to run it now because Istanbul Bishatcha here are on the verge of winning uh, their first ever title, and you have this situation where. Galatasaray, Fenerbahce and Besiktas, the, the Turkish Bridge 3, who've, who account for all but two titles in the last 40 years, are going to, to not not only not win the title, they're going to not be in the Champions League. And we kind of wanted to find out why they're rubbish now. And it's a, it's a crazy story, really. It's debt, it's bad management, it's total short-term thinking, um, endless conspiracy theories, structural problems. It's basically a football culture on the brink of collapse. It's really interesting. That's, how, that's online at the moment, right? It, it remains online uh, in perpetuity, I believe, yeah. Right, OK. One other big story this week, and this, I think, to finish off, is Clive Tildesley announcing from his conservatory this week that ITV are dropping him, ITV, sorry, are dropping him as lead commentator, describing himself as bewildered by the decision. Do you share his surprise? No, not really. Given what happened with Mark Pugach as well, there's a lot of change going on, but... I think it's a shame. I think he's been fantastic. Um, lots of people have had Clive's voice commentating matches that they've watched over the years that have been defining in terms of England tournaments and Champions League finals. To be fair, working at ITV, you don't hear from him as often. And maybe a benefit of this is that he will go to somewhere with a bit more football because he, he has come up with so many lines, as he say, Lindsay. Clive Tilsley's stamp has been on so many of the iconic moments of the last, what, two, three decades of football. I think it's it's tough being a commentator, isn't it? Even I mean, everyone who's in the media kind of complains about about kind of how hard it is for us, being, you know, having to deal with people on Twitter. But being a commentator, you are kind of you are really being exposed to everybody for those massive moments. And I think it must be re- really hard to be a commentator who is universally liked. People hate Martin Tyler. I don't hate Martin Tyler. But people really di- really dislike Martin Tyler. People people don't like. The, the big names on the BBC, does that, it's one of those jobs that I think people are convinced they can do but and they're so say, exposed to it. As you say, no bigger test than the big moments and I think that's where Tilsley has really excelled. But this is what happens to commentators. You start your career and you're a fresh voice. Everyone's like, oh, I like that new commentator. Then in your kind of imperial period, everyone goes off you because you're basically commentating on stuff that a team you don't like has done. So Tilsley obviously forever linked with United's 1999 Champions League win. So loads of other fans are like, I don't like Tilsley. But then as they get towards the end of their career, they're kind of seen as this kind of great figure in the history of English football commentary. So, yeah, I mean, as you say, I think for... For people who grew up with Tilsley commentating on the Champions League in the 90s, you know, there's something kind of very nostalgic about sort of him and Big Ron or Jim Begley and just going through an, uh, a Manchester United or an Arsenal game, wherever. It's, um, you know, it takes you back. And he does have all those, 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 all those iconic lines. That, you know, the, it, obviously Duncan mentions Barcelona in 1999, but Tilsley is, is hello, hello oh, that's in, me, in Istanbul as well, which is a great better. bit of commentary. Yeah, because it's one thing to react to something that's happened, but he's actually predicting there the most unpredictable scoreline there's ever been in a Champions League final. The first Liverpool goal goes in with Milan 3-0 up, and he just says, hello, he knows what's coming. And that was such a brave 
brave reaction. The thing I think he did so well was he's such a perfect commentator for television because he lets the picture speak. And I think if you go back to Barcelona in that Champions League final in 99, if you if you rewatch it back, there is a period of time after Solskjaer scored that winner where he doesn't speak and you're taking in the visuals like Peter Schmeichel doing a cartwheel. Um, and he just lets it breathe just at the right moment and then he comes in with a line. Manchester United have reached the promised land. He did it as well in the Premier League when he announced the arrival of Wayne Rooney. He was like, remember the name, Wayne Rooney, when he scored his first goal. And those moments stick with you because I'm, I must admit, I'm not the sort of person to take in lots and lots of commentators' lines. I don't really remember them that greatly, but there are some from Clive that I do, Martin Tyler, of course, um, and Peter Drury more recently. And I think it's a real art to be able to have that in people's memories forever. So that probably does cement him. The one good thing out of this decision, perhaps the fact that it it gave us a new column from Richard Keyes in which uh, Richard admonishes (laughs) Clive for not taking this decision quietly and just moving on. Of course, Richard, very much the expert in doing that with (laughs) a disappointment. He did admonish Clove, his his close friend Clove, rather than Clive. I spoke to to Clive Silsley once. He said that what he tried to do was, was remember, especially during World Cups, was that it's not just the hardcore football fans who are watching. He's not just talking to, to people who spend sort of 17 hours a day on Twitter and think constantly about football. There's a lot of kind of casual viewers, especially in the ITV role. You know, you, you're, not, you're not speaking to the, to the ardent followers. And so I think he, he often got, got kind of criticised for explaining things that seemed obvious, but that was because he was talking to people for whom it might not have been obvious. And I, I think that he's someone, like Duncan says, that maybe will come to appreciate a little bit more when when his career is over, which he, he's very adamant it, it isn't now, and he will continue to be ITV's number two. And I suspect somebody else might make a play for him anyway. Right, there's so much football out there. be surprising if, if there wasn't a, a, a high-profile job for him somewhere. For now, though, we'll, uh, we'll leave you, perhaps, with one or two of his choicest moments. Many, many thanks, Rory, Lindsay and Duncan, for being with us today. And to Paul and James earlier on. We'll be back Sunday night reviewing all the weekend and, of course, the FA Cup drama listener. Do hope you join us for that. For now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye and hello. It was Gerrard! Hello! Hello! Here we go! Speed of light strike from Gabriel Batistuta! Not for me! Not for me! You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.